RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Well, not too long to go now before the general election in October. Some people are saying this is one of the most important ones we've ever had. So we're starting to try and work out uh, the positions of the parties and polls is one of the ways that we do that. And depending on who you talk to, polls are either a necessary part of um, the process we're going through now or they're a distraction. They're either really accurate or they're not. For those who've heard Winston Peters on this uh, channel in recent times, he's always bagging the polls. He always has been. And uh, we were interested to see a letter to the editor uh, from the Research Association of New Zealand kind of laying out a few uh, things to understand about polls. So we thought we'd find out more. And joining us uh, right now here at Reality Check Radio is Murray Campbell from the Research Association of New Zealand. Murray, thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio. You're welcome. Okay, so when Winston bags the polls, has he got a point? Um, not particularly in this country. Um, if, if you look at how the polls have performed since 1996, and you compare the polls that were published in the week leading up to the elections and the election night result, on average, we were off by only 1.4 percentage point, right? right. 1.4. So um, across the 150 countries in the world that do some form of political polling, we, we rate very well in terms of the consistent accuracy uh, of our polls. Um, and that relates to almost all political parties um, that, that we have polled since 1996. And I, I say 1996 because that's when MMP became uh, our reality. Which makes it a little more complex because back in the day it was, what, one or two parties? Uh, that was it all the time. And, the, and, and, the, <laughs> and, and it, it was just a shift between those two parties, I would imagine, back in the day. Uh, well, actually, um, I'm just trying to remember the name of Bob Jones' party in, was it 1984? I think it was the New Zealand party, wasn't it? Um, yeah, he, he, he helped unsettle National. Um, by, I think he got about 12% of the vote. But actually, between MMP and First Past the Post, MMP is a far easier um, way to measure and then predict the share of the vote. Um, because first past the post, they, they kind of had like, we had the share of the vote, but then you had all the different electorates you had to attribute the vote to. So it was in some ways um, more complex to predict who was going to win. And, and on, on the odd occasion you had under uh, first past the post, uh, parties got more, got, got less votes, but still retained power. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Take us through um, the methodology of conducting a poll to get to that sort of accuracy, just what, under 2% um, uh, margin. What oh, is the yeah. margin of error that's normally yeah, accepted? Yeah. I mean, typically the polls that are published in this country, we interview about a 1,000 people um, who are, are of voting age, et cetera. And the margin of error for uh, a 1,000 interviews is about 3.1, 3.2 percentage point. And, and what that means is that if we got like a 50-50 split, let's, let's take, for example, um, Labor uh, in, you know, in the 2020 election, there was prediction of around about a 50% share of the vote. We would say that 
the population of, of all voters, their support for Labour would be at maximum 53 and minimum 47. So that's the margin of error, three points above or below what the sample had predicted. Okay, but if you're, if you're talking like that, and again, referencing, I'm, I'm only using Winston as an example because he's been quite vocal on that, that that margin of error could wipe him to zero. Well, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And, 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 and um, what happens, though, in, in terms of the maths of it, is that as, as the uh, result moves from 50% to, say, 30%, 25%, 10%, 5%, the margin of error drops as well. Oh, so, okay. the, yeah. so the margin of error is never bigger than the result for that party. Right? Okay. When you talk about the 1,000... Um, yeah. individuals that you um, poll. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're going to, to be accurate, they're going to have to reflect the diversity. Yes. There's that word, diversity of the New Zealand <laughs> um, population base. Yeah. So, and that encompasses now quite a few groups. So, how do you go about sort of trawling through? Yes, it's, uh, it's quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and uh, let me just kind of go through the, the main ways. Um, Almost all uh, polling companies now use a combination of uh, online panels, uh, and these panels, um, there might might be over 100,000 New Zealanders of all walks of life on these online panels, and they'll use that in combination sometimes with um, random digit dialing of mobile phone numbers, right? Okay. And and, and so there's this kind of hybrid approach to get the people who are who are hard to reach online and, or hard to reach on their mobile phone. I mean, when I first started in, in polling last century, it was yeah. it was mainly done on random digit dialing of landlines. And- yeah, because that, that's been a criticism, hasn't it? Even recently that um that it's done on landlines and that's only going to get to a certain yeah. gener- generational I, sort of demographic. I don't know of any company who um, does most or, or even a high proportion of the uh, interview on landlines anymore for that reason. Yeah. So, okay. So that, that that's the initial source of the sample. And then there's many different approaches to making sure they're truly representative of the cross-section of the New Zealand voting population. Some uh, polling companies have quota by age, location, uh, gender, uh, ethnicity, uh, and others will um, get a, what they're trying to randomise the uh, cross-section of the sample they pick, and then they'll um, maybe reweight by those different targets. Uh, and we, we, what we're trying to do is replicate what we think <clears throat> will be the population of people who actually vote. Right. Not, not all people age, aged over 80, and that's a really important point because people's propensity to vote is not consistent across the population. Older people are more likely to vote than younger people, et cetera. Do we know what the, um, the proportionality of that is? Uh, people who don't vote, bearing in mind it's not, uh, you know, it's different in Australia, you've got to vote. I think it's yeah, yeah. illegal not to, you don't have that here. But the proportionality of older versus younger voters, do we know? I, I can't give you that number off the top of my head. The Electoral Commission, I think, is the best source of information. Right. For that. But yeah. we, 
I was, I was speaking to one of the country's most experienced pollsters just the other night, and we think about 85, 80 to 85% of the population who, um, who can vote actually do vote. So it, it's quite good. Yeah. It's still at 80 to 85%, but it does fluctuate. Okay, so is there anything about um, this general election, given that there are, okay, there are the main players, but there's also this fragmented, yes. what they call freedom vote as well, yes. which if you add up that fragmentation, seems to me to be still a, a reasonable figure, potentially, yeah. that someone could grab. So is there anything about this election that's sort of more complicated, more involved, more yeah, interested when it comes to polling? I, I, certainly there is, and you've, you've touched on already the, the kind of fragmentation and the kind of the protest action that we saw uh, on the lawns of, of, of Parliament, I think were a really strong symbol of that increasing fragmentation and potentially frustration. And, and what also arose from that was the power of social media and, and different groups driving that social media. So I think, you know, for a country of only, what, 5.3 million people, it's it's the fragmentation within that population is just accelerating. Uh, and that, that makes it harder for, for pollsters to feel confident that they'll have that full cross-section of voter behaviour. And the, the trickiest thing, Paul, is that Historically, um, you know, people will say to me or to other uh, pollsters, oh, I don't want to participate in this poll because I don't want to share my opinion. And you think, okay, okay well, you're, you're, you're very welcome to your privacy. We won't encroach on that. But typically those people don't vote, right? So because they don't vote and we haven't, we haven't managed to measure their opinion, it makes no impact on the prediction. Right. Where it gets tricky is that if someone says, look, I don't want to take part in this poll, but they then do vote, then we have a problem from a, from a polling perspective. Yeah, because you're not registering that. No, um, no. That, um, that sentiment. So yeah. can we get into a situation, though, with polls where the polls start to lead opinion? You know, because people are, yes. you know, they can be led. So you perceive yeah. that a, a certain... Um, uh, you know, um, uh, configuration supports a sort of yeah. configuration is developing, and then you kind of, kind of likely to follow the trends rather than sort of. It's it, it, that's, that's that's a huge fundamental question which um, pollsters kind of debate and discuss all around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. And and it it really, I think it's it, it's vital though that on the balance of all things that people understand. And, and can have trust in information that tells them, is the party that they're most likely to support, is the party that they trust the most, how close is it to point one, the 5% threshold? And then secondly, can it contribute to the ruling coalition of parties? And I, I think all things considered, it's better that they have that information than they don't. Yeah. You know, because the, the the countries that kind of put an embargo on uh, on polling results before an election, be it two weeks or, or three weeks, sometimes a month, typically are the countries in in Latin America, Africa, where democracy is fairly fragile at the best of times. Yeah. 
Okay, and there's also the uh, phenomenon of early voting because you, you could see a yes. change in, in poll <laughs> trends in the time right. that people have voted to no, the totally. actual day. Yeah, totally, Paul. That's, um, that was a, a real uh, issue in the 2020 election because um, then, and maybe it was because of the impact of COVID as well, we had more people voting before the election than on election day. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at the numbers. In the lead-up to the election, almost 2 million people had voted prior to October the 17th versus 690,000 on election day. And that, that was a huge shift in um, early voting compared to the previous two elections. Doesn't that make a mockery of the process in a way? Because... <laughs> Because you, you, you manipulate that if you're a political party. You can do your lolly scramble knowing that X amount of people are, are early voting. And then, you know, what happens after that, based on the numbers, let's say, doesn't necessarily change the support you're going to get on the day. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's to use that word, it's interesting because it, it, it kind of, if, if you've got, you know, two-thirds of the voting public have, have, have cast their vote before election day, so to speak, um, it either means they really have to get their message out earlier than historically, because usually it's the last week with this, this huge flurry of activity. They're, they're really spending a lot of time and money on advertising their message. They're racing up and down the country, talking to everyone who wants to listen, uh, some who don't. Um, but, you know, if, if, if we've got two-thirds of the voting public have already expressed their vote before Election Day, you know, that, that tends to change the strategy for um, campaigning as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking like a, of a scenario like it's happened in the last week where you've had a cabinet minister get into mm. trouble, cause mm. all sorts. If that happened in the week before an election, yeah. and that was the last call <laughs> for a lot of people and that already voted, well, you know, yeah. Yeah. there goes that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also interested in the polling that political parties themselves do. Yeah, yeah. Is it to the same level of accuracy and detail and resolution and and procedure that you just described before? Is that are they getting that quality data themselves? I I certainly I, I guess I, I've known worked with those pollsters for uh, I don't know fifteen years. Um, I think they're extraordinarily dedicated and accurate in their polling and because to be honest they do much more polling than the um polling companies associated with the main two television uh, channels they are and, and they have more budget they are probably even more accurate and, and when we compare across the four or five main polling companies over the last 15 18 years we're about the same, but the, the the two companies associated with Labor and National, they they do a, a very fine job. Yeah. So you can kind of see by the way they're communicating and messaging, that will be informed by their regular polling. You can you you, you can sort of look, <laughs> I suppose, for patterns in what they do that would be generated primarily from the polling that they're doing. There's a lot of activity that that they do. It's I and I'm, I can't speak on their behalf entirely, but well, apart, you assume, apart, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, apart from the, the kind of quantitative polling, they'll do a lot of qualitative, in-depth investigation on sentiment and uh, emotional connection with ideas and policies and people. Yeah.
sort of like uh, focus group stuff. Mm. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. And and I think most, uh, you know, large political organisations around the globe do a mixture of the qualitative focus group and the quantitative poll. Yeah. When you do a poll, because mm. obviously you've been doing it for a while, Mm. Let's get a sense early on for how this thing is tracking, and obviously everyone's waiting for the result. <laughs> so, what's that process like? Are you able to, you know, <laughs> call, call it usually, or are That's you good. constantly surprised still? That's a great question. Um, but the thing I've learned is is not to take an early look at the poll results because the people that you interview uh, in the first part of the poll, they're quite different from the last part. Now, I'll give you uh, an example. When we were doing it as a mixture of, this is like two or three elections ago, a mixture of online and telephone, the first people who would participate in in those polls were kind of people in their 60s, uh, very, you know, committed to democracy and wanted to have their opinion expressed. The hardest to find were the young males living on the west coast of the South Island. Right? Well, they you, didn't give a rats. <laughs> well, you, you would be just phoning forever to get hold of those guys. Yeah. So um, but, so the opinion of the 24-year-old in Greymouth and the 66-year-old in Pam Ewer, very different. So you, you, you didn't take an early peek at it. But it, it was... It was a it was a great uh, you know uh, almost privilege to open up the data set once the poll had been completed to see what the how the numbers were what the shifts were what the confirmations were etc. Yeah. What about um, gender? Uh, there must be um, obvious patterns in responses poll poll responses um, when it comes to gender. Uh, yeah. Are there any noticeable patterns that are consistent? I think, um, yeah, it, it, not really. Uh, it's it's age, I think, before gender. Right. Um, the the thing that I've have noticed though is that um, the quality of the leader or the appeal of the leader, the trust of the the likability of the leader, that seems to sway voters in, in different ways. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like an emotional litmus test, like, oh, do I like that person? It, it, it's almost that subconscious connection, and that varies uh, quite a lot. Yeah. I guess if we're herd animals, that makes sense, because someone's got to be out front of the herd. Oh, I'm totally. mixing up my metaphors here. No, 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 I, I, I think you're actually uh, right. There's, um, you know, we, we as pollsters and, and a fair number of journalists tend to disaggregate everything down into its minutiae, whereas a lot of people just have that gut feeling, you know, do I like that person? Do I trust that person? Do I want that person running the country on my behalf? And they won't sweat all the details. Uh, about it, yeah. Well, Ardern was a good uh, example of that, yes. wasn't she? Because uh, she was very empathetic and, yes, you know, sort of, even though she wasn't a mother at the time, mother of the nation when she came along. But, uh, it, you know, that's gone south, it's fair to say, with a lot of people. So that can change. But at first, um, and that 2020 election that, that we were just talking about before really showed that. So I think... I, that- well, I, I'd say, Paul, even when she took over, as the leader of the Labour um, Party in opposition in 2020. Yeah, true. Yeah. There was a huge step change 
in support for Labor when she took over. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So is that just a um, a function of uh, Labor supporters, let's say, feeling desperate that, that all was lost? Uh, I think when Andrew Little was the leader then. Yes. And then, you know, it's such a relief. And of course, <laughs> young, exciting, quite, you know, uh, presentable uh, young woman comes on the scene and everybody sort of falls to their knees saying, thank God we thought this was going to be a wreck. Or, did, <laughs> or was there something magical in the personality or the way that the media um, transmitted that? It's, I guess it's hard to say. Oh, it's, it, it, it's all of the above. But I, I think a really interesting test is, is when people uh, hear someone's voice and or they see them on screen, do they lean forward or do they lean back? Ah, uh, okay, um, yeah. Do they, do they cross their arms? Do they do their eyes widen? It's all that kind of almost subliminal um, interpersonal connection. And, um, you know, Jacinda Ardern had it in spades, as did John Key, to be honest. Yeah, well, he had, you know, the, it always sort of came up smelling of roses type of <laughs> thing. i got to say, I wasn't a lean-forward uh, guy for Ardern. I've got to be honest about that. <laughs> But it, virtually everyone else I know was. So, okay, <laughs> final question, and you don't have to uh, answer this, yeah. but you might be able to give us um, like a, a yes, I've got a feeling for it, or no. Yeah. From what you've seen all this time doing this, what, what I guess the data that's been coming in recently, do you have a gut feel for how this one is is going to turn out, or is it too complicated to tell at this stage? Oh, you know, you, you would you would think after the, the justice minister, you know, crashed a car on a Sunday night that it may kind of be extraordinarily difficult for Labor to uh, retain, you know, government. But so many weird things can happen <laughs> in this little yeah. country um, leading up to an election. Uh, and I, I think that inevitably it will be one of the smaller parties who will still hold that balance of power. Um, and as always, it's going to be an incredibly interesting uh, and fascinating trip right down through to, to October. Yeah, You'll go probably right down to the wire on the day, won't it? Well, yeah, coming back to your point about, um, you know, early voting, postal voting. But, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the capacity for things to go wrong in, in a pre-election phase is very high. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of pressure on them all. Murray, it's been fascinating uh, talking with you. Is there anything else that we've missed or anything else that you want to tell us about polling so people, at least um, when they um, you know hear Winston going on or seeing <laughs> something on the media about polling, they can think back, well, I heard Murray talk and I've kind yeah, of got sure. it. Yeah, th thanks for that. Look, what I'd like to say is that there are some celebrated examples, particularly in the States with Trump and with Brexit in the UK, and I yep. think the last Australian election where the polls were seen to be a bit off. But I've been involved polling in New Zealand and internationally for a long time, and, and the, the latest kind of reference of international polls across 150 countries has said that apart from those few exceptions, the accuracy of polling has increased rather than decreased. Okay. Yeah. That's the first point. The second point, in New Zealand, we still are regarded as one of the most accurate uh, polling nations in the world. And, and so if anyone gets asked by whatever means to take, poll, take part in a bona fide poll, please do. When people 
stop participating, then the accuracy of the polls decreases. And then we have a less clear understanding of what's the mood of our fellow people around the country. Yeah. All right, Murray Campbell from Research Association of New Zealand. Really appreciate you coming on to RCR and explaining all that. I think we learned a lot. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.